Hey y'all. 239 years ago, James Sadler became the first British aeronaut when he took off in a balloon that was 170 feet in circumference, and 77 years later, the United States Army Balloon Corps was formed. In honor of these firsts, Lynn Newton of the Anderson Abrezzo International Balloon Museum is joining me to talk about the history of balloons. This is episode 19 of the Plaid Pilot Podcast, and I'm your host, Todd Weld. Hey Lynn, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay, how are you? I'm doing great. Excited to talk about some balloon stuff today. Good. <laughs> um, I guess if uh, if you'd like, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and that kind of thing. Um, so um, my name is Lynn Newton. I am the exhibitions curator at the Anderson of Rizzo Albuquerque International Balloon Museum. It's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> I've been here about three years. And so a little caveat as we start this conversation Um I am not a consummate expert in um, lighter-than-air flight. Um, I am learning every day. Um, and my, my work has been focused on exhibition development. So it's kind of dependent upon where what, what the needs were and what our plans were and things and the exhibitions that I've done since I've been here. Um, but I have, you know, it's like a broad introduction, if you will, to a lot of different aspects. Um, but I'm definitely not an expert across the board. So I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. You're, you're our expert today. Uh, so do you have a, uh, a, any experience with flight, either uh, hot air balloons or fixed wing or anything? Um, I'm not a, I'm not a licensed balloon pilot myself, um, but I have flown on a number of occasions with um, pilots here in Albuquerque. And I've also flown in Cappadocia in Turkey before I ever knew I would ever be working here. So Okay. Just <laughs> a, <laughs> a strange coincidence. Yes. Well, that's cool. Okay. One thing, uh, one thing that I like about just balloons, uh, I'm not, I've never been on one, but just from a history perspective is that when we talk about aviation history, we always, for some reason, it seems like we always start at the Wright brothers and fixed wing mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times it gets ignored that lighter than air flight, hot air balloons precede fixed wing flight by something like 120 years. Correct. So yeah. there's such a huge, huge period of, of history. Basically half of aviation history is hot air balloons. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, all, I it's a, something that's always also kind of uh, thought it strange. Fixed wing, you know, we've studied birds and, other mammals that can glide and stuff like that to develop that. But with hot air balloons, there's not really a anything in nature that makes itself lighter than air, at least not that I know of. Mm, And so (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of strange that that's the way that we, the the first way that we flew was a way that we didn't have any, couldn't look at nature for inspiration basically. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about, how, I mean, obviously they weren't looking at animals, how they were able to go to get this idea of hot air balloons. And because I believe the Chinese actually in, you know, BC era were mm-hmm. flying lanterns and stuff on the same principles. Right. Um, but how did that translate to man flight? It's um, a really good question. Um, so, you know, you think of when the Montgolfier brothers and had their first flight in 1783, you know, Europe had gone through the scientific revolution and um, and now we're entering, you know, like in the enlightenment period. And and so this this idea of observation and testing and figure, figuring things out and it just kind of stems out of this wider worldview, um, um, particularly in Europe. 
and sense of like, yes. So in terms of the Chinese and, um, in prehistory, um, um, you know, that being documented with lanterns is like this observation and understanding the environment and what happens when, when something is heated <laughs> and this kind of like, oh, th- these things rise. And so the story that's often told is that the uh, Mont Gauffiers had um, about seven, eight, so like a year before um, their first official flight that was, is deemed like the first in France in 1783. Um, you know, that they were just doing some experiments and trying out some different things based upon some just physical observations. Um, and some of these experiments were um, observed by members of the Royal Academy of Sciences. And um, and then they were asked to kind of build upon this. And, um, and then they built um, this balloon, which then, of course, flew um, on September 19th, 1783, um, was the first flight at Versailles. So you can see it became kind of in the court and it was for the king. <laughs> like the king owned the balloon, basically. I mean, he had it built. And so... Um, Did he finance that as well? Or was that kind of just uh, as subjects of the king, we're going to do it for him? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not, I mean, I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, and t- but I would imagine... Um, that there was some financing that was done by by the royal court um, to support it, and so it's it just it's a happenstance, you know. The right people met the right people at the right time, and then it got this exposure um, where you know thousands of people are in attendance, and then next thing you know, you know, it wasn't like it was the most ex- successful flight, but it did it did make it up in the air, and um, and it was a hot air balloon in the sense that it was. Um, heated um, by burning straw and all these things like on board. Like, um, so it's not a very, um, it's not a perfect system, if you will. Like it was just like kind of ad hoc and, and it worked. And then, you know, you throw some stuff together so much, and see what happens kind of thing. Yeah. You can only have so much fuel up there too. So, but it, it, it worked and it caught the um, attention of a lot of people. Um, and so this, of course, this first flight in, on September 1973 was the flight with the sheep, the rooster and the duck. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, like are, are, is something bad going to happen to people, to humans <laughs> if they go up in the, you know, a little bit of the atmosphere? Like, you know, this whole idea, fear, I mean, it hadn't been done before. And so what what impact would that have on on a living being? And so um, some animals, farm animals were were um, put to ascent and um so when the balloon landed and everybody saw that they were okay, it's like, okay. So then um, November 21st was uh, the first manned flight in 1783. So that was um, with Pilatre de Rosier and Francois Laurent, the Marquis of Arland, went up and um, so and proved that it's okay for, for people to do this. I mean, think about it. Nobody's done it before. So how, you know, there's no way to know right. what, what impact it would have. So. Right. Yeah. That makes, so it took them a couple months after they, they sent the, the sheep, the duck and the, was it rooster? Yeah. 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 So they sent the handful of animals up and they came down and everybody was happy and, and safe. So it still took them a couple months to, do they have to convince somebody to get on or do they have to well, it was, build it, it was differently? Another, or? Yeah. So another balloon was built actually. So, okay. um, so it's the, uh, Le Revillon. I don't, I'm not a French speaker, so pardon my pronunciation, but, um, and it's it's cool because this um, these balloons were cotton and um, they were actually had um, well I think the Revillon was silk 
but it had a paper overlay. Um, and there was a famous um, printer in, in Paris um, who did, you know, fancy wallpapers and all these wonderful designs. So that was this, the design of the, of both of these balloons were just quite extraordinary, really, and very special. Um, but it was this beautiful print paper that overlaid hey. the, the base of the, the balloon. So I think the first one was cotton and I think the second one, the second one, the man balloon was silk. And, um, and again, just heated the same way, just building a fire on board. And, and technically you could call these smoke balloons as well. It's just like so much is billowing and, um, and that's what's helping with the, um, the rise to be able to, for the ascent. Okay. So, and that was, that was primarily in, uh, in France, I guess, all of the, uh, the ballooning for the first, what would you say, probably the first year? Um, yeah. So how, how did it come across? Obviously we have ballooning in the United States. At what point did it, uh, it come over to the United States? Cause we had just, I guess we were still working on, you know, just a, a country in its infancy at the point when the first balloon went up. Right. Um, but how did, uh, how did that translate over to the United States when it, it came over here? I assume somebody over there brought it over. Yeah. So the first um, manned flight in the United States was January 9th, 1793. Um, it's in a high, it's in a high, uh, excuse me, a hydrogen um, gas balloon piloted by Jean-Pierre Blanchard. Um, and this first ascent was in a prison yard in um, Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. And so, and George Washington apparently was there to observe it as well. Okay. So it was a, it was a, a huge event basically. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Well, what's, so kind of, what's something that's interesting that happened, like, so, um, you know, we have these, the, um, Joseph and, um, Etienne, Etienne, um, Montgolfier, you know, and their first two balloons and this, this big, um, these big affairs and occasions with the court of Versailles soon after, um, by before the end of that year in December of 1783, um, the first um, gas balloon ascended. And, and it's interesting, you know, gas balloons um, became just more prevalent. Um, and it's uh, hot air balloons never really went out of like, they just didn't completely disappear. There were uh, through the course of aviation history, but um, gas balloons, it's like you, it was more dependable. And, um, and it's not to say easier, but it was easier in the sense that like you knew if you were able to get enough gas to actually for the lift that you could actually have a flight. Um, and, and it would be determined on the amount of ballast you use and you can control, you can control that better than this kind of a willy nilly, maybe the fire will go out and we're not sure <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> and so, um, so gas ballooning became much more prevalent um, very quickly. Um, and where hot air balloons, um, in terms of, you know, you have to have a heat source and a dependable heat source and it needs to be safe. And so through the course of time, you know, various um, aeronauts, you know, did some experiments and tried to improve upon um, the technology and, and the engineering, if you will. Um, and then gas ballooning also then kind of went to the masses where it became kind of you know, a barnstorming kind of thing where, you know, the county fairs and they became spectacles for various individuals and people do, you know, parachuting off of them and trapeze acts and things. And so it became kind of um, less of a, 
a scientific endeavor, if you will, and more of like a entertain what fell into the realm of entertainment kind of quickly. Um, okay. So, which is kind of interesting. But. So, what's inter- interesting to me, I didn't realize that it the uh, you know the gas balloons came about that quickly after the the hot air balloons. Do you know how? What the pro? I mean, it's a probably a pretty scientific question. Uh, but do you know how they were able to get those gases, basically, like especially hydrogen or, or whatever, how they were able to separate that and and collect that at such? Because to me, that seems like more like 20th century kind of stuff, yeah, not, so, not so much 18th. Right, I know. So in the sense of like, yeah, those, it, it's probably burning some sort of, um, of coal, uh, like coal gas. Um, um, but the first, the very first ones, like, um, in terms of how how the hydrogen was harnessed and produced to be able to do the um, inflations, I'm not 100 percent sure. Okay. Yeah, whether I think coal gas is a little bit later, but gotcha. Um, so I imagine what what did the safety you know in those early days of hot air ballooning versus you know the gas balloons? Because I know if they're using hydrogen, that's highly flammable, uh, and with the hot air balloon, the open flames in the you know there's we're we're talking about two different things that need to be controlled there were was there the gas balloon inherently safer at the time or um in some ways yes um and well i would say definitely in terms of like comparing them again it's like once the inflation is there it's like you know you're going to be able to have the lift and you're not concerned about you know your materials catching on fire uh, running out of fuel and and having a terrible landing, you, or you have a much better. Um, not to say that's one hundred percent secure that it's going to be a great ride, but um, <laughs> a flight, but um, definitely um, a, a safer bet with the gas balloons, just no, in yeah. terms of being able to control your um, descent, for example, much better. Um, so there's an interesting thing too. So. Um, Rose de Rosier, um, who was the, the first pilot, right, in uh, the first man flight, he also did um, a flight with um, another gentleman, and they attempted to cross um, the English Channel. And what they did was, they, you know, they were experimenting, and they um, had a hydrogen balloon, but they also um, kind of combined it with hot air compartments. So there was, they were tra- actually combined the the systems just to, to, to try it. And of course it didn't end well. Yeah, um, I can imagine. <laughs> Open flames and hydrogen gas. Yes. And so there was a fire and um, the balloon did explode about a half an hour after it took off and um, both of them met their demise. But what's interesting about this, though, is that there is a mixed system that is used in ballooning, but of course it doesn't use hydrogen, um, but it uses helium gas. So helium and um, a hot air mixed system is called a rosier system. And a lot of um, long distance ballooning um, that ha- has happened, you know, world record flights and things like this are have been done with rosier um, balloon systems. Okay. And that makes sense with the, the basically inert helium keeps the, the flame doesn't become an issue with that. And, Correct. and then they don't have to use as much fuel to stay aloft. Right. Exactly. And so okay. it, it creates a much more stable flight. They're able to maintain altitude, um, with, you know, not dropping down too much, um, with cooling and then having to heat up again. 
um, they're able to stay at a, a much more stable level altitude during a flight. Okay. So using using less um, less ballast. So and the gas side of things, the light the flight can last longer, and then you um, by using the, the the helium fuel as well. That makes sense. Okay, so talking about staying aloft for long periods of time, I know you know talking about the later part of the eighteen uh, hundreds, you know, nineteenth century. Uh, the fastest way to get all the way around the world was airship, you know, the gas mm. balloons essentially with some sort of uh, engine on them. But my understanding is that nobody took a hot air balloon completely around the world until was something like 1999. Yeah, it's, it's really recent. I mean, I'm also just considering that the modern hot air balloon system um, wasn't developed until 1960. And, and so in, in terms of, you know, being able to, develop systems and have enough fuel on board and figuring all these things out. And of course, you know, having the funding <laughs> available to support such an endeavor as well as, as right. part, of, part of that story. <laughs> so I didn't realize, I guess the, you know, with the airships and all that, the the gas balloons, hot air balloons basically took a, a backseat and it wasn't until the sixties that they experienced kind of a revitalization or, that's when the modern system was developed so that where there was finally a reliable heat source, um, the propane tanks um, to be able to sustain flight at a even keel, right? So it's like, I have so much fuel and I can stay aloft for two hours, for example. Like this is, this is, a, it's actually very, very recent. And so this was done, um, so Ed Yost um, and a number of other gentlemen at Raven Industries are the ones who um, developed the system for the Office of Naval Research, um, who actually funded it because they were they wanted a system, a, a means to go across um, borders um, during, you know, thinking of like the Cold War and, or, you know, the Iron Curtain, if you will, and and be able to go over a border, drop leaflets, propaganda and whatnot, and be able to land and then ascend and come back quickly or be able to be picked up by another another means. But, um, but that's really how the modern air system um, became came together and went or like when it did anyway, kind of okay. when it did. And then um, and then quickly after that, um, uh, so Raven went into um, business or they already were in business, but they weren't, up, you know, expanding beyond just the um, government contracts that they were doing because there's also scientific ballooning, the big gas balloons for atmospheric and cosmic ray research and all that stuff that was happening. Um, and Reagan was involved in that as well. But for um, thinking about sport ballooning, this wasn't until like the mid sixties and it really, really took off and no pun intended, <laughs> but really took off um, where um, uh, people in the general public were buying these systems. And then next thing you know, there's festivals and gatherings and, balloon clubs um, organizing. I mean, the Balloon Federation of America had already been in place because of, of course, there were gas balloons. So it's much older than than this, but um, but really um, had a resurgence of uh, memberships and new things happening with um, sport ballooning um, uh, with the hot air balloon, modern hot air balloon system. Okay. So with that, you know, obviously as things get more popular, usually they get more accessible to the the general population and, and cheaper as a whole. Is that something that somebody who was interested in, you know, getting their, 
their certificate to be a hot air balloon. I don't know if pilot or aeronaut is the proper yeah, term no, now. No, you can aeronaut works definitely. Uh, I, I prefer it actually. I think it's a nice word. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a, it's got a. It makes it you know stand out from everybody else. It seems like. Right, but right. Uh, do you know what the process looks like for that? My understanding is there's no certified flight instructor, no FAA rating to be a flight instructor for hot air balloons. It's something that a commercial, uh, with the commercial certificate, you would be able to achieve. But do you know what that process looks like as far as training requirements? And are there schools around that you can go to? Or how would somebody get into something oh, like sure. that? Yeah, sure. There's There are... Um... There are flight schools, and I mean, particularly for for ballooning, to become an, a licensed balloon pilot, um, you start with a student license, and believe it or not, the minimum age for this is fourteen. Um, okay. And you know, it's like you need to be able to speak right and understand English, um, and not have any medical issues per per the regulations. And then the next step is um, so you're starting to take classes and and things like that, and then. Um, the next step is for a private license. So here you've got to be at least 16, um, complete 10 hours of flight training, um, complete six flights under the supervision of a certified flight instructor. So, so there's that part. And then um, there's two flights that you have to take that are at least an hour um, within thir- within uh, two months of your certification. And there's a couple of other things. But there's also you have to pass an FAA written test. And then there's a practical, uh, practical knowledge test, which is an oral exam. And then, of course, then you have your check flight, which is your final part. Um, and to, or in order to get your, your private license. And then, of course, commercial, there's other, the other, you know, specific aspects of things you need to tick off of boxes. If I can talk about that to you a little bit, if you'd like, but, um, all in, um, for a, a private license, I mean, you can imagine, you know, this is going to be more than, I would, I would say more than $5,000 and then, um, and then six at minimum six months. It takes time. You know, it's like all these things are weather permitting too. It's like you can schedule things and it, there's good chances you may not be able to go up for your exams and things like that as well. So it, it does take, it's time consuming and it's, you know, it does, it's expensive. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, unfortunately, everything in aviation seems to be that way. Right. It's, and, uh, and then, of course, yeah, it's like, and then at what point do you want to invest in um, your own equipment? And so renting and things like that or using other people's equipment. So those costs along the way as well. So, so is it mostly right now, or I say the majority of people, uh, is it hot air balloon clubs that, that provide the balloons that you can rent out? Or is it you know, I can't imagine that most people, even just from a storage perspective, I don't know when they're not inflated, how much space they take up, but it just seems like that would be a lot of, like, you got to put yeah. that somewhere, yeah. right? Is yeah. is I that... Mean, uh, right. And so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've known balloonists, I've met people who share balloons, um, which is a possibility. Um, and, and likely that's going to be through a balloon club, other people that you meet that are, that are actively um, flying as well. Um, that's a possibility. I don't know of a facility here in Albuquerque. And, and of course, we have the largest balloon community in the world. But I can't think of like a place where you rent them necessarily to be able to fly. I think you would just need to make arrangements with other people that you know or that you meet um, on a personal level, perhaps, 
to um, to support getting your license or figuring those things out or you know either borrowing or renting from people that you know so okay that makes sense. So you, you mentioned uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, having one of the the larger ballooning populations. I assume is that in the country, in the world? Uh, what does that look like? Well, they say in the world, <laughs> okay. and it is uh, it is kind of um, it's interesting being here because um, if you don't know somebody who's a balloonist, it's it's rare here. You know, either somebody that crews. For for someone on some level in, in, involved in ballooning, if if you live here, you likely know someone on some okay. level that's involved in ballooning and not a balloonist themselves. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I can I can remember growing up once in a very great while we would see a hot air balloon, and it was always the coolest thing because it's something you see airplanes all the time, but you never see a hot air balloon. Mm-hmm. And even here, I live in, in Las Vegas. We have a lot of complex airspace. So I don't know if that probably dissuades some of that ballooning activity. But once in a while, we'll see one out on kind of the edge of the valley. And it's still kind of a really cool thing to see uh, because you you don't see it very often. Uh, but there, I guess you do. And so... What it's almost, um, I would say, um, I wouldn't say it's not every day because, of course, it's not every day, but um, the majority of the year, like I see balloons in the morning. Okay. And now, is that just the weather's great there, or is it the fiesta that brings balloon lovers to live there? It's a combination of things. So, and it's, I think a lot of this stems from even like the, the beginnings of the balloon fiesta. And what happened here is, and Albuquerque is really quite. It's, a, it's extraordinary because um, things kind of started with um, uh, Bill and Sid Cutter um, of Cutter Aviation. So they had a, a fixed wing um, flying service here, which is still in business, actually. Um, yes, I've landed uh, user services a couple yeah, times. Okay. <laughs> and um, so um, they wanted to have a birth, this birthday party for their mother, um, Virginia Cutter, who was also just very important to the company. And um, in one of their hangars. And so they had this, you know, World War II themed party and Sid had heard about these balloons. This is like 1971. And he's like, I want to get one of those and I want to inflate it and have it in the in the hangar for her birthday. So he flew up on his private plane to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where Raven is uh, was um their headquarters were and picked up this balloon and came back and they couldn't even inflate it the whole way. It didn't fit. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then the next day, um, uh, Bill says to, to said, you know, um, we need to go take that for, we need to go fly that, you know, let's go take it for a ride. He's like, Oh, we don't have the, any, we're not ready for that. He's like, Oh no, I have the tanks filled and all this stuff. We're going to try it. So they go out and, you know, they have never flown a, a hot air balloon before and you know, they they managed to get it up in the air and, and took a flight. And literally, um, by the time that they landed, they were surrounded by people um, who just were like, what is this? What's going on? And so um, basically just following the balloon and, um, and then they were asked to um, bring the balloon in 1972. They were asked to bring the balloon um, to a KOB radio, this is the KOB radio station. So they were having a, their 50th celebration and like, oh, bring your balloon and you can put some advertising on it for us and we'll have it set up. And and then next thing you know, they were like planning a, a balloon race. And so they invited balloonists. I mean, you know, at this time they're 
a handful, maybe maybe a hundred in the country. There aren't a lot of people doing this quite yet. And so um, they had arranged for 19 balloonists to bring their balloons to Albuquerque for um, for a race, a hare and hound race. And then I think they ended up with 13 that were able to make it here. There was a snowstorm. This was, you know, like in February of 1972. And so out at the Coronado Mall. And um, so I had this race and it's officially known as the first balloon fiesta. Um, thousands of people showed up, thousands of people. And next thing you know that there there's a local balloon club. So it's the Albuquerque Aerostat Ascension Association. It's called the Quad A. And there's has a tremendous membership even now. But um, next thing you know, there's families buying balloons together and this club just expanded. And Albuquerque has never been the same since, <laughs> to be honest. Like it's a it's a huge ballooning town. Um, a lot of a lot of people do this. And then um, and then even the next year um, uh, during the second balloon fiesta. So. Um, Sid and uh, his brother and uh, Tom Rutherford and some others formed World Balloon Corporation, the World Balloon Corporation. And um, and so they applied for the first World Hot Air Balloon Championships to be held here in Albuquerque. So that was in 1973. We're actually celebrating the 50th anniversary of that this year. Um, okay. And so the world really came to Albuquerque very early on. And so it's been international here as well um, since basically the beginning of the balloon fiesta. And um, it just set the tone and captured the imaginations and the hearts of so many people here. There are ballooning families that go back to this time in the early 70s and that are still ballooning and crewing and doing all kinds of all these ballooning activities and rallies and things. So it's 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 really special here in that way, for sure. That's really cool. The uh, Anderson Abrezzo International Balloon Museum that you work mm-hmm. for, what part do they play? Because the, the, the Fiesta is coming up here. Is it next month, beginning of next month? or? Yeah, so it starts October 7th this year, where it's a little bit later than usual. It's usually the very first week in October. And uh, so the museum... Uh, we we are a city facility. We are run by the city of Albuquerque. And actually, Balloon Fiesta Park, which I can see right out of my window right now, is where the fiesta is held. And it is a, a city of Albuquerque park, which is rented by the nonprofit organization, which is the, Al- uh, the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta. So the Balloon Fiesta rents it from the city for two months. Um, they're busy um, getting everything squared away out there. There's, it's becoming its own little city right now. So there's tents and they've got all the marked off for all the, the launching spots and everything. So things are underway. But in terms of the museum, um, we host a number of um, activities every year. Um, we start um, the Balloon Fiesta season here at the museum. We are the home for the Federation Aeronautique International Hall of Fame, Ballooning Hall of Fame. Um, and so we have the induction ceremony um, the Friday before Balloon Fiesta starts. So we'll be celebrating two wonderful balloonists um, this year, uh, Dewey Reinhardt and Phil Dunnington um, of the UK. And then it moves into, um, you know, just helping people navigate the museum. Um, We also, of course, have new exhibits. Um, There's a lot of new things this year and some very special programming. The second Saturday this year is um, Albuquerque is in the path of annularity for an annular eclipse. 
Um, so there's special programming um, and things that are going to be happening on the field with Balloon Fiesta. And then also here at the museum, NASA is going to be um, broadcasting live here, as well as NOAA and their special programming for families and kids. So it's going to be a really cool day. So that's um, Saturday, October 14th. Okay. It's going to be really cool. So it's 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 a very busy time for us, um, but it's also it's also just a lot of fun. And um, so here in Albuquerque too. So we have um, what's called the Albuquerque Box, which is a really cool wind uh, phenomenon. So basically, um, you know, as you know, um, balloonists, you don't necessarily know where you're going to land, right? So you take off, and you're <laughs> it's, you're at the the whim of the wind. Well. This, it, this isn't always in play. It's not, it, it is conditional. You know, when the conditions are right, um, you can actually land where you took off or close. So um, from you're not allowed during Fiesta to actually land on the field. You have to land off the field. But in theory, you could. And so um, there's canyon winds that bring you south kind of over the museum. And of course, when you hit the burner and you rise um, and go up, you can actually catch a wind that will take you back north. And you can come back. So it's, it's just, it's called the Albuquerque box. Um, okay. It's a really cool phenomenon. Um, so where we sit at the museum, most mornings, the balloons just kind of float right over the museum as they're launching. It's really quite beautiful, really phenomenal. So the, I guess for the, for the Fiesta, I, I was under the impression that a lot of them, they just were, they stayed anchored. But I guess that's not the case. They'll oh no, actually no, take no, no. off and oh no, they fly, they fly, and and then there's also of course the competitions. So um, and they go in waves. So this year I think there's you know there's more I would say around 650 balloons that are participating, um, and so they they take off in waves. And there's a whole kind of culture um, of balloon fiesta. So there's the launch directors, which um, dress they're called the zebras and so they wear it started off with like referee jackets like black and white striped referee jackets and then it turned into (laughs) the the zebras out on the field and um and it's just it's the balloon fiesta here is really something special because um visitors can go out on the field and go right up to the balloons and talk to the pilots and they can touch things well within reason of course um but um, (laughs) like But it's it's a very cool, intimate experience. Like it's, and you're right there, um, where a lot most other balloon rallies and things, you you know, you're cordoned off and you can watch from from the other side, if you will. But um, it is it's quite extraordinary. It's just the sights, the sounds, um, the colors. It's just it's just fantastic. It sounds like it. So, are you guys looking for? volunteers to help run that is that something that the city provides all of the manpower for because i imagine there's a significant uh investment of you know work and energy and all that that has to go into it right and so the albuquerque international balloon fiesta they have their own um system and own setup for um, volunteers for being out on the field and and all their operations um and here in the museum we also um have a number of volunteers who help us um, with visitors to the museum and we have docents and people that give tours and things like that. So, but we're separate in terms of the, the volunteer, um, opportunities, um, here okay. are a little bit different. They're very specific to the museum and the needs of, of, because we have so many more visitors, of course, <laughs> um, right. the museum gets really busy and it's, it's, it's fantastic, but, um, of helping us manage and keep everybody, you know, 
taken care of and um, and, let, and helping to facilitate them having a really good experience um, in, the, in the museum just as much as they are out on the field at Fiesta. Gotcha. So if uh, somebody was interested, wanted to come check out the museum, you guys on social media, you have a website, how can, uh, how can somebody find you? Uh, yeah, so we, um, so it's, um, we are, of course we have a website. It's through the city of Albuquerque. So, um, it is, it's like cabq.gov balloon museum. You can find us online. Um, and then also on social media, um, it's, uh, the Albuquerque balloon museum is our handle there, I believe. And so, yeah, you can find us there as well for information about our events um, as well as, um, hours and things like that. We do have special hours during Fiesta. So we're open, open until nine o'clock in a few occasions. And we do have some special events, um, planned as well. We have, um, a steam, we call them steam nights. So fun, um, activities for, um, science and art learning. Um, we'll just leave it at that. There are just, there's some great events. Um, so looking for us on, on our, um, Facebook or Instagram is the way to go um, for information about those. Okay. And I'll, I'll definitely include those in the show notes as well. So uh, with a link or whatever, so people can just click right over if they want to, they're listening somewhere that publishes the show notes and all that kind of stuff. Speaking of social media, uh, I put out a, I don't know what the right word is basically a request for anybody who had questions for when we sat down and talked, if you got time to, uh, I only got two of them. I, kind of drop the ball and put that uh, request out later last night. So okay. wasn't as much, okay. it wasn't as much time, but uh, I got a couple questions here if you okay. uh, have time to answer them. So okay. uh, on Instagram, Jamie runner wants to know essentially how they work. We, I mean, we've talked a lot about them, but we haven't talked so much about the principles behind them and, you know, steering. Is there any way you can steer them? Is it all wind? What that kind of looks like. Okay. Um, so essentially, no, you don't necessarily, you don't, you can and you can't, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> so um, it is upper level winds, you know, it's like you, you look at the clouds sometimes and you're like, whoa, why are some of these clouds moving one direction and like the lower ones moving another direction? Like that just seems kind of odd, right? And so, but it's kind of the principle here of like, so once you're inflated and you're in flight, um, you know, depending on your altitude, and this is, of course, any given day is going to, it's going to vary in terms of what wind speeds are at various altitudes. So there's going to be a directional shift and a, a wind speed shift um, as well. So, and so at, at different levels of um, the atmosphere as you're, as you're ascending, um, you're going to catch a wind that might take you to the northeast. And then if you go a little bit higher, you might end up going south a little bit. And so um, studying this and understanding the weather of any given day, this is why, you know, meteorologists and weather people, especially at rallies and things like this, or things like such as the balloon fiesta, the balloon meister is there. And then there's a weather team too. And so there's, you know, this weather report every morning of these are the conditions, this is what you can expect at such and such level and whatever. And you can kind of plan it out as well. So you can have an idea of where you can land based upon that. 
Um, especially, <laughs> but a guess more or less. Yes, but it's 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 not ex- it's not exact, you know, in in that way. Um, but I will say, um, going back to this point um, and using Fiesta, Born Fiesta as an example. So um, during the week, there's competition in um, fly-in competition. So after the, the the beautiful flights launch in the morning. Um, you look around and you're like, what's going on? And you just see all these balloons like coming into the field and they've launched off site and they're coming into the field. And so they need to know and understand their relationship from where they're located and the winds at different elevations and, and, and how to navigate that. And so this is a, this is a sign of a really good pilot is that I can, from where I'm at, understand based upon the, the weather information that I've been given, I can um, create, I understand what I need to know. I need, I understand what um, altitude I need to get to, to go a certain direction and then how to shift it so that I can actually navigate to the field to drop a baggie on an X. And it is possible because they do it. <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> so I guess it, the wind's aloft and yeah, flight planning and all that just, it takes on a whole new meaning. When it's that's your sole source of getting somewhere, okay. Right. So and basically, so it's, it's possible, but it's um, there's a lot of skill involved, and it just it's it seems simple, but it's it's it can be complicated um, to to master. Yeah, but there's some really really good balloon pilots out there that just can, can nail it. And most of hmm. the a lot of the competition pilots here at Fiesta are are top notch. And of course, and then there's prizes and all that. So there is a winner of Balloon Fiesta. <laughs> really? I didn't yes. know that. Yes. That's cool. <laughs> all right. And then the the other question I got from uh, Sabrina Youngs, she asks, how much is maintenance on one balloon? And I'll add to that. Um, I guess what, if somebody wanted to buy their own balloon, what would the initial cost look like? And then, like she said, what would it cost to maintain it and keep it up? Because airplanes are obviously very expensive the maintenance on them is going to be almost as much as, as purchasing them. Yeah. Um, is that the same case for balloons or how does that work? Or are um, you familiar with I'm, that? I'm not, uh, I'm not, the, I'm not terribly familiar with, in terms of like throwing numbers out here. Um, but um, so there is, so the initial cost, of course, you know, it's like buying a car, you can buy a small one that's kind of not so fancy, like in terms of like the things you can get and all the toys and the gadgets and, um, all that. So it, it runs the gamut, but I would say probably starting around $15,000 for a balloon system. Okay. Um, and then I imagine as much as you wanted to spend, yes. right. Yeah, it go, <laughs> right. goes up, up and to the right. And then there's annual, so it has to pass inspections, um, um, and airworthiness certificates are reissued. I think it's annually. Um, okay. And, I know it is for airplanes, so that would make cost. sense. Yeah. So it's, um, and the cost of that, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but it's, it's, you know, it is a, a cost that just, it's going to have to be built into, um, owning. Right. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, thank you very much for, uh, sitting down with me and talking a little bit about all this kind of stuff. It was great talking yeah. and, yeah, uh, I know so. you're busy, especially yeah. this time of year. Um, yeah. but, yeah. uh, but I do appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's nice to talk with you too. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for hanging out. I hope you enjoyed the show and learned something new. Don't forget to follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't, be sure to leave a review as well. 
As always, feel free to reach out with anything you'd like to hear about in future episodes. My email and other contact info are in the show notes. Y'all stay safe this week, and as my incredible wife always says, fluffy landings.